So last week we finished Isaiah 56, and let's back it up to 56.9, because what he's talking about there is he's talking about Israel's leaders who are not doing what they're supposed to do. And then he's going to go to the righteous man, and then he's going to go back to Israel and apostasy. So we want to get a run at it. So Isaiah 56.9, All you beasts of the field come to devour, all you beasts in the forest. His watchmen are blind, they are all without knowledge, they are all silent dogs, they cannot bark, dreaming, lying down, loving to slumber. So again, the idea is that the leadership of Israel is intended to watch the flock, and they're not doing their job. So the invitation of all the beasts of the field to come and devour indicates that the people of Israel are going to be prey for those that the watchmen are supposed to watch against. Verse 11, the dogs have a mighty appetite, they never have enough, but they are shepherds who have no understanding, and they have all turned to their own way, each to his own gain, one and all. The idea that dogs have a mighty appetite, these are the watchmen over Israel, and they are consuming the flock instead of guarding it. And since they are in a position of trust and a position of power, what they're doing is they're using their position to enrich themselves or fatten themselves. Verse 12, Come, they say, let me get wine, let us fill ourselves with strong drink, and tomorrow will be like this day, great beyond measure. It said last time, and I will say it again because it was correct, the idea there that God is not paying attention. God doesn't really care what we do, or if he does care what we do, he's not going to do anything about it. So the idea of one day being like the next, he didn't come and take us out yesterday. Tomorrow's going to be the same. So you might just as well enjoy yourself, uh, fatten yourself on the sheep, and continue on the way you have gone because there isn't any justice to speak of. He's like the great watchmaker that just set everything spinning and doesn't really pay any attention to what's going on. Yeshua talks about this over and over, various parables where the master sets things up and leaves and expects his servants or tenants or whatever the metaphor is to be doing well as well as doing good while he's gone and he gets really grumpy when they're not. This is by way of the same metaphor. Now down to Isaiah 57. The righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Devout men are taken away while no one understands. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. This is sort of a mixed message. So the first part you've got is the righteous man perishes and no one lays it to heart. Well, if you take that in the context of what we just read at the end of 56, what that's saying is that the righteous are perishing because the shepherds are not doing what they're supposed to do or the sheepdogs are not guarding the flock or whatever. And when they do perish, the ones who are supposed to be paying attention and guarding the flock are not paying any attention. So that's sort of message one. Then you get down to the end of verse one, for the righteous man is taken away from calamity. 
not by calamity, but from calamity. So the idea there is that the righteous man will be saved from calamity. He enters into peace. They rest in their beds who walk in their uprightness. What I am taking that to mean is even though the watchmen over Israel who are supposed to be guarding the flock are not doing that, God himself is watching over them. And when calamity actually does come, the righteous will go through it as opposed to the wicked who will be destroyed by it. So now in verse 3, we switch back. So instead of talking about the righteous man, in verse 3 it says, but you draw near, sons of the sorceress. And I will suggest to you that God calling you the son of a sorceress is not a compliment. That just sort of sets things up. So, but you draw near, sons of the sorceress, offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman. Whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth wide and stick out your tongue? Are not children of transgression the offspring of deceit? You who burn with lust among the oaks, under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys and under the cleft of the rocks. We all got the idea this is not good, right? Who is being mocked here? You have the faithless shepherds. Then you have a righteous man. Now we are back to sons of the sorceress. And the comment was they are mocking the righteous, saying, why are you bothering to be righteous? You ought to be gathering stuff with both hands like everybody else does. And that is entirely a possible understanding. The other possibility is that they're mocking God by saying everything is the same as it was. Tomorrow is going to be just like today, which is to say God is not exercising justice over the people and he doesn't care what we're going to do. So you might just as well live it up. And it isn't so much ignoring his rules. It's this attitude that yesterday and today and tomorrow are all going to be the same. Misbehavior is the righteous and the unrighteous all misbehave from time to time. So misbehavior is not the thing I think that's mocking God. The mocking of God is all of the prophecies who say that he's just and there's going to be recompense and God is going to reward the righteous and punish the wicked. All of those scriptures, starting back you know, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, when they say today is like yesterday, will be like tomorrow, what they're saying is all those scriptures, that's just pious nonsense that the priests tell us to keep us in line, and there isn't anything really to it. So two comments were mocking the righteous or mocking God. And I will suggest that either one of them works just fine. I think the idea of mocking God, however, when you talk about sons of the sorceress and offspring of the adulterer and the loose woman, in the context of Israel's relationship to God, I'm suggesting that maybe we're talking about God here. So whom are you mocking? Against whom do you open your mouth and stick out your tongue? Are you not children of transgression, the offspring of deceit, you who burn with lusts among the oak, 
under every green tree, who slaughter your children in the valleys under the cleft of the rock, burning with lust among the oaks. That is not talking about going out on a fine spring day in pairs and messing around in the forest. That's talking about pagan idol worship, what the Brits would call Druidism. And then, of course, child sacrifice. By the time Israel gets sent into exile, they are practicing child sacrifice. So verse 6, among the smooth stones of the valley is your portion. They, they are your lot. To them you have poured out a drink offering. You have brought a grain offering. Shall I relent for these things? And I don't know what the smooth stones of the valley are. I mean, it's clearly talking about idol worship, where they're pouring out drink offerings, burn with lust among the oaks, and and all that kind of stuff, every green tree. So the idea that they're out in the woods doing druid-like stuff which is to say worshiping nature, worshiping the gods that are natural gods, all those kinds of things. But I'm not sure what the smooth stones of the valley are. And the commentary I read doesn't give me any insight. In other places, it talks about the high places. It talks about Asherim, which are totem poles. Those are fairly clear. This one is not, other than somehow it is connected to pagan worship. The point is they are making offerings to these idolatrous symbols. And then God says, should I relent for these things? In other words, should I forgive you for those things? Verse 7, on a high and lofty mountain you have set your bed, and there you went up to offer sacrifice. Behind the door and the doorpost you have set up your memorial. For deserting me you have uncovered your bed, you have gone up to it and have made it wide. And you have made a covenant for yourself with them. You have loved their bed. You have looked on their nakedness. Obviously, we're talking about idol worship. And God is regarding idol worship as adultery, where Israel is married to God, and she is giving that which should belong to God to another. So again, the idea is the bride or the wife of God, who is Israel, has got round heels. And she's fooling around with gods that she shouldn't be fooling around with. Verse 9. You journeyed to the king with oil and multiplied your perfumes. You sent your envoys far off and sent down even to Sheol. You were wearied with the length of your way, but you did not say it is hopeless. You found new life for your strength, and so you were not faint. So the idea here is this is not idolatry of convenience. This is idolatry that they will go to some trouble to follow. They didn't just sort of stumble into a oak grove and say, wow, look at the beauty of nature and start sacrificing. They have gone to far kings to find out how they worship. They have gone so far that any reasonable person would get tired out with the journey and give up. But they persevered so that they could find out how these other nations worshipped their gods. Verse 11. Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied and did not remember me and did not lay it to heart? Have I not held my peace even for a long time and you do not fear me? Let's camp here for just a minute. 
Whom did you dread and fear so that you lied? What was it that caused you to forsake me and go after an idol? Now, there's several answers to that question. A month or so ago, I talked about idols. And one of the signature features of an idol is an idol is something that authorizes you to do what you want to do that God says you can't. So if you've got an idol that allows you to do abortion, child sacrifice was their version of abortion. So if you have an idol that says you are offering your children to Moloch for whatever reason, then the idol authorizes you and gives you an excuse and gives you permission to violate God's law. God, for example, gives you sex as a gift. And he says sex is very powerful and this is how it should be used. Well, almost nobody, when they're young and full of juice, are particularly happy with, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute, you mean I can't, and so forth. And so what idols do is then give you permission to go beyond what God allows in your sexual appetites. It gives you permission to go beyond what God allows in every other way. So idols are very attractive in that way. The other part, though, is whom do you fear? One of the things that we're dealing with in this country right now, and I am suggesting they were dealing with also, is Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. In the kingdom of Israel, under Ahab and Jezebel, Baal was sort of the official religion. And so people who worshipped Jehovah would have been persecuted. And what we find now is that people who worship the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are also shunned, persecuted, thrown off of Facebook. All sorts of horrible stuff happens to them. Once paganism takes hold in a culture, paganism then turns and attacks the people who are following the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and makes life difficult for them. And so people who are not firmly grounded and established will go with the flow. Life is much easier here if I worship Baal or sacrifice to Baal than if I go to church every day. You see it in the rise of anti-Semitism throughout Europe and the United States now. You have Jews getting beat up for wearing kippahs. Karl Marx was Jewish. One of the things that destroyed his faith as a boy is his father left the synagogue and became, I believe, a Lutheran. And his son says, why are you doing this? And he says, business is better in the Lutheran church. In other words, the business opportunities are better as a Lutheran than they were as a Jew. And, I mean, that was a mental disconnect for him. His father, who had brought him up as a Jew in the faith, just sort of, oh, that's not important now because I have better business opportunities over here in the Lutheran church, so we'll go be Lutherans. Which tells the boy that the things his father was telling him about God are suspicious. And he then goes on to become an atheist and tries to figure out an atheistic philosophy to compensate for his loss of Judaism. So this whom did you fear in Isaiah here could very well be talking about 
pagan idol worship has become the dominant religion in Israel at that time, and people were going with the flow because it was easier than sticking to the worship of Jehovah. And have I not held my peace even for a long time, and do you not fear me? This goes back to the point I was making earlier where everything is the same. Same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. Just keep doing what you're doing because God isn't paying any attention. If he even exists. Verse 12. I will declare your righteousness and your deeds, but they will not profit you. What on earth does that mean? Let's take it up to the time of Yeshua. Remember, Yeshua got all over the religious leaders because they were very punctilious in doing the form of religion. So they were doing all of the right stuff, but they weren't following God. So here where it says in verse 12, I will declare your righteousness and your deeds. In other words, you are doing the form of stuff, but they will not profit you. You are doing stuff that is technically correct, but you are not doing what is important. Verse 13, when you cry out, let your collection of idols deliver you. The wind will carry them off, a breath will take them away. But he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. This is more of what I've been calling trash talk, where every chapter or so God, through the prophet, says, get your idols up here, line them up, let's see what they can do. And, of course, the answer is they can't do anything. And so this is very much in that same vein. And then, he who takes refuge in me shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. Take that back up to verse 1 in Isaiah 57. For the righteous man is taken away from calamity. Remember I talked about that earlier. Even though all of this stuff is going on and Israel as a nation has fallen into unrighteousness and idol worship, God is keeping track of his own. And so what he says up in verse 1 is the righteous man is taken away from calamity. And when you get down to verse 13, it says, He who takes refuge in me, God, shall possess the land and shall inherit my holy mountain. So for all of this where he's excoriating them for all of the wicked stuff they're doing, he is still saying that I am keeping track of those who are not falling into this kind of stuff. And that flies in the face of the wicked who are saying, today is the same as yesterday and tomorrow will be the same as today. So just go ahead and keep on in your iniquity because God is not paying any attention. God is saying to the righteous, yes I am. And don't worry about those who are trying to oppress you and trying to drag you into idol worship and saying, God isn't paying any attention because he is. Verse 14. And it shall be said, build up, build up, prepare the way, remove every obstruction from my people's way. For thus says the one who is high and lifted up, who inhabits eternity, whose name is holy. I dwell in the high and holy place, and also with him who is of contrite and lowly spirit, to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. 
what I am suggesting to you is that is by way of inheriting the mountain. So what he's saying is, when I do act, I will recognize who is mine, and I will prepare the way for them to revive the spirit of the lowly and to revive the heart of the contrite. Well, your spirit and your heart don't need to be revived unless they are beaten down. So what we've been talking about is the dominant culture is into idolatry, and one of the things that idolatry does is it persecutes righteousness, which means that the humble and the contrite will be beaten down by the culture. And so what God says is he will revive them. Verse 16, For I will not contend forever, nor will I always be angry. For the spirit would grow faint before me, and the breath of life that I made. So what he's saying there is at some point his anger is going to pass, because if his anger doesn't pass, then those who depend upon him, the righteous, will perish. It's sort of like it says in Matthew 24, if the times were not shortened, no flesh would survive. So at some point, God relents and drops his anger, because if he doesn't, nobody survives. Verse 17, because of the iniquity of his unjust gain, I was angry. I struck him. I hid my face and was angry, but he went on backsliding in the way of his own heart. I have seen his ways, but I will heal him. I will lead him and restore comfort to him and his mourners, creating the fruit of the lips. Peace, peace to the far and to the near, says the Lord, and I will heal him. But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet. And its waters toss up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. What I am taking that to be, and this is Johnnyology, there are going to be in the end, in Israel, everywhere else, hardcore wicked. Sort of the leaders of the pack, if you will, in wickedness. There are going to be others who go along to get along. They are not hardcore wicked, it's just that they want to keep their jobs, so they go along with it and don't make waves and, okay, I'll come to your sacrifice, because if I don't show up at your sacrifice on the Sunday picnic, then I'm going to not get promoted. In other words, they're not hardcore wicked, but they're also not the righteous. And what I think this is saying is, at some point, I am going to take all of those people and pick them up by the scruff of their neck and give them a good shaking and bring them back to me. The wicked, however, the hardcore leaders of wickedness, there's no hope for. I don't know if that's what it means, but that's what it sounds like to me. Onward to chapter 58. Cry aloud, do not hold back. Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Declare to my people their transgression, to the house of Jacob their sins. Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as if they are a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the judgment of their God. They ask of me righteous judgments. They delight to draw near to God. Notice we have two things going on here. One is declare their transgression. And the other one is they are keeping the form 
of godliness. And Jeremiah says the same thing. The idea that you got the temple of the Lord, you got the priestly class, you got the Levites, you're doing all the stuff, but God is not impressed. So we're talking about the transgression of the house of Jacob and their sin. And other places, as people draw near to me with their lips and their heart is far from them, it's all over Scripture. This is not unique, but I think that's what's being said. Verse 3. This is Israel speaking now. Why have we fasted and you see it not? Why have we humbled ourselves and you take no knowledge of it? Behold, in the day of your fast, you seek your own pleasure and oppress all your workers. So what they're doing is, again, they are doing the form of godliness. They're fasting and all that kind of stuff, and they're grumpy with God because God isn't paying attention to all their piousness. And God is saying, uh, when you're fasting, you are seeking your own pleasure. And he'll say that about Shabbat in just a minute. You oppress all your workers. In other words, you're not doing justice to your hirelings. Verse 4, Behold, you fast only to quarrel and fight, and to hit with a wicked fist. Fasting like yours this day will not make your voice to be heard on high. Is such the fast that I choose, a day for a person to humble himself, is it to bow down his head like a reed, and to spread sackcloth and ashes under him? Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? That is a rhetorical question, the answer to which is no. The idea is they're doing all the stuff. You're bowing your head like a reed, and you're spreading sackcloth and ashes under you, and you're doing all the humility stuff, but you aren't. Verse 6. Is not this the fast that I choose? to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the straps of the yoke, to let the oppressed go free, to break every yoke? Is it not to share your bread with the hungry and bring the homeless poor into your house when you see the naked to cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? When he says not hide yourself from your own flesh, what I'm assuming that means is taking care of your family. Because remember, Yeshua has the same quarrel with the religious leaders in his time where it says, wait a minute, you have dedicated your money to the temple, and when your parents then need your support, you say it is korban, and I can't give it to you. Thus making the commandment of God to no effect, which is to honor your parents. So this hiding yourself from your own flesh, I am suspecting, is in that spirit. Verse 8. Then shall your light break forth like the dawn, and your healing shall spring up speedily. Your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. Remember we had the glory of the Lord being the rear guard before? And that was in what I believe is the millennial kingdom, where Israel is brought back into the land, God shines them up and then sends them back into the world in order to evangelize. And in that case, he says, I will be your rear guard. And of course, the cross-reference to that is when you go up to the Feast of Ascent, God will watch over your stuff so that random Midianites and Moabites don't come in and loot the place while you're up worshiping. So the idea of God being your rear guard when you are doing the things that God would have you do is what's being spoken of here. And the other part that I 
find interesting, your healing shall spring up speedily. Remember, one of the things that they're complaining about is they are humbling themselves, they are fasting, and I am assuming they are asking to be healed, and they're not getting any results. And so what God is saying is once you start doing the things that I would have you do, then you will be healed. Verse 9, then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and speaking wickedness, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. The complaint earlier is we fasted, we've humbled ourselves and God isn't paying any attention to us. God has told them why he's not paying any attention to them. And he's saying if you go do righteousness, then I will pay attention to you, and I will hear your prayers. Verse 9 again, then you shall call, and the Lord will answer. You shall cry, and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger, and the speaking of wickedness. There's three things there. The yoke is oppressive behavior. You are oppressing those who are below you on the social scale or on the economic scale. So getting rid of the yoke is thing one, which is quit oppressing those that you have power over. Thing two, pointing the finger. What that is is accusation among each other. You're a racist. You're a misogynist. You're whatever. That's pointing the finger where you yell at your brother for imagined offenses in order to suppress it. So a reviling accusation is pointing the finger, okay? And then the final one is speaking wickedness. And that is tempting other people to break Torah. One of the things about sin is sin is never happy being by itself. Sin recruits. Because you feel a whole lot better about being wicked if you got a crowd around you. So what you do when you are tempted to sin is you try and bring as many people in with you to join in your sin so that you won't feel so bad about yourself, slash, so that there are too many of us for the authorities to arrest. If we all do this, they can't arrest us all kind of thing. So it's sort of a twofold thing. So the three things that God says in order for him to hear them, is quit oppressing those who you have power over, quit reviling accusations against each other, and then quit tempting others to join you in your sin. Verse 10, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then shall your light rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday. Notice we keep having that image of light rising in the in so forth. In other words, you'll walk in the light instead of in the darkness. The comment was the Septuagint translation of verse 10 is somewhat different. My translation is, if you pour yourself out for the hungry and satisfy the desire of the afflicted, then your light shall rise in the darkness. And the Septuagint gives more of the sense, instead of physical hunger, you know, giving someone bread, what it means is coming alongside and sustaining somebody spiritually. And the 
other comment was, your light will rise in the darkness and your gloom be as the noonday, perhaps speaks of the New Jerusalem where there is no need for straight lights because Yeshua is the light of the place. So if you're doing what God would have you do, his light would shine through you. Both good comments. Verse 11. And the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your desire in scorched places and make your bones strong. And you shall be like a watered garden, like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. And of course, the agricultural desert metaphor in the Middle East without God's rainfall is a desert. And so the idea is that he will sustain you even when you are going through the scorched places, which is to say when you run into affliction on the earth, he will sustain you, he will walk with you, and he will guide you in that process. Verse 12, And your ancient ruins shall be rebuilt. You shall rise up the foundation of many generations. You shall be called the repairer of the breach, the restorer of streets to dwell in. As I said lots and lots of times, this is being written over a century before the destruction of Jerusalem under Nebuchadnezzar. Yet it looks past the destruction of Jerusalem and forward onto that to the rebuilding of Jerusalem. So this is looking very far in the future from Isaiah's time, because in Isaiah's time, Judah hasn't gone into exile yet. And then verse 13, if you turn back your foot from the Sabbath, from doing your pleasure on my holy day, and call the Sabbath a delight, and the holy day of the Lord honorable, if you honor it, not going your own ways, or seeking your own pleasure, or talking idly, then you shall take delight in the Lord, and I will make you ride on the heights of the earth. I will feed you with the heritage of Jacob your father, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Now you remember back in, I think, 56, where it talks about those who have no hope, which is to say Gentiles who are separated from the Lord and eunuchs who have no offspring. And he says, what I will do is I will give them a hope and a heritage and bring them into the kingdom of the Lord. And the condition of that is that they keep the Sabbath. So those people, eunuchs and the nations who keep God's Sabbath will be blessed by him and he will give them an inheritance which they do not have in the natural. And remember in Ephesians, Paul talks about the nations who were separated from God strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope. And so what he's saying to the, to the eunuch and the nations is that he will give them a hope. And then what he's saying to Israel at the end of 58 is, oh, by the way, your hope also is in the keeping of the Sabbath. Because if you keep the Sabbath the way it's intended to be kept, which is to say delighting yourself in the Lord as opposed to treating it as a day off when you can do whatever you want, as opposed to having to work for a taxmaster. If you delight yourself in the Sabbath and you delight yourself in the Lord and rest as he says, then he will build up your city. If you treat the Sabbath as simply a respite from work, where you then get to do your own thing, you've missed the point. And in fact, the rabbis have a saying, that if all of Israel for one day 
would do the Sabbath properly, the Messiah would come. I'm not arguing with it. I'm not suggesting that I don't believe it. But the point is, they see that most of them are not doing the Sabbath either. And what they say is, if we could get everybody to truly delight in the Lord and take his Sabbath as a rest in him as he intended it, then the Messiah would come. Shama.